Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello and welcome to the Amplify podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert, Amplify producer at Nottingham Playhouse. Now we've entered our third national lockdown, I'm once again holed up in my makeshift bedroom studio, having a series of interesting conversations with exciting theatre folk. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Paul. Thank you for joining us today on the Nottingham Playhouse Amplify podcast. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Enjoying the sunshine through the window um, in my makeshift bedroom studio. Um but yeah, it's a, it's a pretty nice day. And uh, thank you for talking to us on Good Friday. It's super kind of you. What does um, social distancing look like for you? What have you been up to? It's been quite interesting the last couple of weeks. Re, uh, our company told by an idiot and how we've been looking at how we remain present and active uh, in these uh, strange times, particularly, I suppose, because our work is rooted so much in improvisation and spontaneity. It's quite interesting to look at how we reflect that somehow through uh, a different way of working at the moment. So, uh, yeah, we've been sort of developing our what we call Idiots in Isolation programme, uh, which has been quite intriguing. Oh, brilliant. Um, tell, tell us more about that, if you can. Is it OK to share it publicly? What, yes, of what course. Is that? No, yeah. we, have, we, have some, we have some things up uh, online at the moment on our website. I think, like everybody, we were thinking about how do we retain, as I said, a presence, and how does that work on a digital platform connect to the ethos of what we're about? And I think for us it's probably trickier than some other companies. I mean, 95% of our work is made for improvisation, as I said, and, and it's about a, a constant quest for spontaneity. And in a lot of our work, we, we, haven't, we don't use an enormous amount of technology. It's a very, very live event that's going on. Um, so we wanted to give ourselves some time to try and think about stuff that felt uh, authentic to us. So at the moment, we've got a few things up there on the website and we're adding to it. We've got a thing where we're releasing some uh, archive films of old shows which again is very contradictory for us because we never really revive anything unless it's maybe to take it abroad internationally. And every time we have a big anniversary, we were laughing about this. The question comes in, oh, should we revive that show from 20 years ago? And we always come to the decision that we won't. But now for the first time, we thought, actually, maybe this is quite an interesting time to, on a different medium and nothing like the live event, put some stuff out there. So we put our uh, first one out last week, which is a show we made called My Perfect Mind that Kathleen Hunter directed with myself and Edward Pepperbridge. And the response in terms of people wanting to see it and watch it has been phenomenal. So maybe we should have been a little bit more open to that, <laughs> the nervousness of thinking not wanting to share old film, I suppose. So we're releasing various films of shows. Uh, we're also, because film is a massive influence on our work and has been right from the beginning, I've selected 10 films which have had a big influence on us and we're releasing one a week uh, as we all uh, sit in isolation, we thought it might be a nice chance for people to, to look at some of these films that have had an impact on our work. We run every, I run every Wednesday a thing called The Doctor's Surgery, which I've run for a couple of years now, which is basically a service for predominantly, not exclusively, younger theatre makers who are devising work and they have an issue or a problem, they can make an appointment with the idiot doctor to try and uh, thrash out some of the things they're struggling with in their devising thing. and. Uh, we've, I've been doing that every Wednesday, and that's been a brilliant thing to do. Whilst we're, you know, people are, are isolated and thinking about how they try to keep a, a project buoyant or the energy in a project. Um, uh, I've written a few essays. Well, I've written one essay at the moment, short essay on the musings on theatre that I've had over the years, which is under the heading uh, a, a conspiracy of boredom. So they're uh, going to be online as well and we're thinking about how we do something that is very interactive but we haven't settled on that yet brilliant um and, and where can the essay be found is that on your website as well yeah that, that's there under this page called uh, uh, idiots in isolation brilliant um so tell me paul where are you from i'm from birmingham from birmingham and are you the uh, the only theater person in your family the only uh, the only artist or do you come from an, uh, a creative background well i suppose there was creative Certainly creativity in the house, um, although no, no one in any way uh, uh, um, made the foolish decision to try and make a living from it. My, my dad was an electrician and my mother was a dinner lady, although my father was a very skillful pianist who 
played by ear and never read music. So there was certainly, I think, uh, creativity in the house, but, but no, I was the only one who made the decision to, the foolhardy decision to pursue it for life, yeah. And where did that uh, relationship start, your relationship with the theatre? I suppose in two senses. I mean, at a very early stage, like most people, my parents took me to the pantomime. That, that was kind of their only, in my memory, engagement with theatre. Occasionally they might see a musical, but they weren't theatre goers. And I remember going to see, you know, big pantomimes in Birmingham, I suppose. But then, very luckily and fortunately, like a lot of other people, I met a teacher at school who kind of inspired me. In, in, in first of all, via uh, literature and reading, being, you know, provoked into reading some of the great novels. And then into this world of theatre. Um, when I was about 14, 15, I can remember one particular occasion when... I was very into sport. That was my kind of thing, really. And uh, and she announced, the, this English teacher announced they were doing the auditions for the school play. And I rather cynically, in a teenager-type way, said, well, there's no point in going because they always cast the same people. So she called my bluff and said, well, why don't you come along? And I, without telling any of my sporting friends, I went along and I got I got a part in a production of Androcles and the Lion by George Bernard Shaw. Um, a small part of this cowardly slave, I seem to remember. I absolutely loved it. I, I, I think, if I look back, it was, it was partly being part of that kind of collaboration with people and the process of rehearsing something, as much as it was the doing of it. And that kind of, I suppose, very initially opened up the idea of, well, I really enjoyed this. And then I think it was her who said, you know, you can do this, it is possible and I had no context for that. So she opened up the idea of, you know, there was a possibility there when most of my friends went into the car industry or what was left of it. So, yeah, I think I've got a huge debt to her at, at that point in my life, certainly. And do you remember, was was there a moment when you decided that, yes, this is definitely the thing that I'm going to pursue for my career and attempt to make a living doing? There's a couple of points, key points, really. I think I kept it very quiet to myself. As I said, it wasn't the kind of environment where you said, oh, I'm going to be an actor. <laughs> so I think I kept it to myself for some time. Um, and then I think there was a careers thing where people, I must have been 15, perhaps, when people started to ask in the classroom what you wanted to do. And I think I took the courage to say it. And there was, in, my memory, in my, my memory of it, there was quite a lot of laughter and and also a sense of that, for me, I felt that the feeling in the room and from the cruise person was that that's not a choice open to me. And I remember thinking, well, why can't it be? And then I suppose the biggest turning point when I was a bit older was my father was very ill and ultimately died when I was sort of 17, 18. And I think that was obviously a massive thing in my life. But I think it also reinforcing me the idea of really really giving this a go uh, and properly giving it a go because I remember my my mother and my older sister saying well why don't you go to university and and, uh, and study English and you've got something to fall back on and again rather foolishly I, and I remember reading a quote from David Mamet years later where he said if you have something to fall back on it you'll fall back on it um, and I think as a sort of 16 year old boy I kind of said a version of that really I thought, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. Or at least I want to see if I can do this. And I, I, I think that determination, I think, partly fueled by losing my father and, in a, in a sense, that sense of going, OK, now I'm really going to go for this. So out of something terrible, I suppose, it came a drive to, to try and see if I could do it. And obviously the reality was I, I didn't come from a wealthy background. I wasn't supported. I knew there was only a finite amount of time I could try it if this worked or not but I thought I'm going to certainly give it a go yeah what did um what did your pursuit of it look like did you did you go to drama school or did you what was your what was I, your path well I once I discovered there was a, such a thing as drama schools I uh I, I auditioned for quite a few of them so I used to get on the bus every coach uh, uh, every other week or whatever from Birmingham travel mainly to not exclusively London auditioning at the the Manchester Polytechnic School of Theatre and the Royal Academy in Scotland, but um, and went to all these auditions and um, like lots of people, didn't really get any success. I remember a very early audition at Central where I felt completely out of place and completely exposed. Um, 
and also intimidated by the environment and the second year students, everything about it on the way back made me think, really, can I seriously do this? Um, but I, luckily I carried on and then I, I got, I got very close at the Royal Academy in Scotland, I remember, and I really liked Glasgow and I was rather gutted when I didn't get in and, and they said, well, we're going to put you on the waiting list for, uh, for next year. And at the same time, I'd had an offer from what was then Middlesex Polytechnic on their two-year acting course. And I, I, I wasn't sure in my rather, well, very naive way, I thought, well, the Middlesex thing can't be a good thing because it's not a proper drama school. So I was a bit, you know, arrogantly young and sniffy about what this course was. But the turning point was when my local authority in Birmingham were going to give me a, a grant, as, as you could then get a grant to do drama, miraculously. Um, but they wouldn't hold it over. They said, if we give you a grant, you have to take it this year. So I couldn't wait a year for Glasgow, and I went for Middlesex. And, you know, like happens in, in life sometimes, it was the best thing I could have done because when I went to Middlesex rather reluctantly, Two people I encountered amongst, you know, after one of these, but two key people I encountered there influenced the rest of what I do and why I do it and how I do it. And that was an, uh, an inspirational teacher called John Wright teaching on the course and a fellow student in my year, Hayley Carmichael. And both of those people uh, with me set up Tolmodia in 1993. But if I look way back to then, I think I had, a, even though I didn't know much about acting, I think I kind of had a view of what some of the other stuff, even though I didn't know, felt slightly old-fashioned, whereas John was teaching improvisation, movement, mask work, and was putting you on the spot in, in a way that no one else did. And it was the perfect combination, John's classes, of fear and excitement. And Hayley had the same feeling about it. So we were both go up the hill to college on a Wednesday morning thinking, oh, it's terrifying, but we have to go. Mm. Um so I, I, I think I ended up in the perfect place for me. Yeah. And I've been asking everyone in these conversations when we uh, when we talk about uh, training and those early years, obviously people are stuck inside at the moment, but we still have the opportunity to read and think about uh, practice and what that might look like for us. So were there any particular resources or books that uh, you can think of that were important to you around that time when you were starting to think about who you might be as a performer and theatre maker? I would say one of the biggest, single biggest influences on, on me as a young actor, and then ultimately, as we then went on five years later to make the company, uh, was the early shows of the Theatre de Complicite, who were 10 years sort of ahead of us, experiencing, again, coming from John, more so than books, in a sense. It was more about whether we have seen something, I suppose. Um, and I remember vividly John saying one night to us as a group of students that he was taking us to the Shaw Theatre to see a thing called An Evening with Theatre the Complicitor. And uh, I didn't know what it was, you know, this French thing, I had no idea what it was. Most of us didn't, apart from Hayley, who lived in Paris a bit. So we all traipsed down about eight of us with John, and we sat in uh, the Shaw Theatre. As the lights went down, in the row I was in, two uh, middle-aged women started to argue with each other. And you have to remember, this was 1986 or something, so things were different then, but in this country. And they continued to argue. One was had a thick Glaswegian accent. And then they stood up, arguing, and they collected their bags of shopping and pushed through the aisle where we were all sitting. And I was mortified. I'm like, oh, my God. And they then carried their shopping down onto the stage. And it was Sylvia Gorboove and Linda Kerr-Scott. And the evening had started. And then Simon Burney came on and got someone out of the audience and copied their walk. And so the century came on and lay on the floor and pretended to be bacon frying in a pan. And I'd never seen anything like it. I was going, you know, I was 19 going, what do you mean theatre can be like that? It felt like the circus or a Fellini film or a mix of all these extraordinary things. So we kind of devoured a lot. And we were fortunate around that time, a bit later, completed a big residence at the Almeida 10-week residency where they revived some of their very early shows and we used to hang out and see all their stuff and, and and got to know them a bit and so I would say in terms of they were a big and of course you know you can now look at this stuff online and various things but they were a huge influence I don't know in terms of, uh, of actual books I suppose there might be things in 
further down the line that I've encountered. Um, you know, there's, there's a wonderful book called The Craft of Comedy by Feeney Sailor. He was a wonderful old English actor who lived to a ripe old age and wrote this book kind of in the 1940s, I think, and it takes the form of a series of letters between her and a young amateur actor who works in a bank. And on the surface, you think, oh, it's going to be this rather old-fashioned quaint exchange about theatre, particularly comedy. But when someone recommended to me, I read it. What she says and what they discuss, particularly how she talks about it, is absolutely spot on in terms of comedy, in terms of playing comedy. So I thought that was a book that I often return to. And uh, and then, you know, I was lucky enough to, to be taught by him and then make a company with him and work with him over a long period of time. But I think in particular John's first book, Why Is That So Funny? It's a, it's a brilliant book about how you make theatre and how you play in theatre. And the role, above all, the role of the actor in theatre because, you know, that's at the heart of told by the idiot's work. If we, if we celebrate anything, we celebrate the role of the performer. So even though I'm passionate about my directing, I'm still very much an actor, and I think that informs all of, of what I do, and, and indeed my directing. So I'd probably say, as I said, the, 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 the early Conquisto work, and then books like this Phoenix Sailor book. Excellent. And uh, tell me about the, the founding of Told by an Idiot. Was that a thing you did straight away upon graduation or were you off being a freelance actor for a bit first? When Hayley and I were about to leave, we were very flattered when John said, you two have a really good complicity when you, when you play together. There's something that happens between you. And we kind of knew that. I, I didn't, we couldn't articulate it and neither did we want to. But it felt whenever we got up, there was something there. He said, you should do something. So, of course, when your teacher, mentor uh, says that and when you're young, you think, oh, brilliant. And we went, I remember we were just about to graduate and we met at a, uh, a Spanish cafe in Camden Town to decide what we were going to do. And we couldn't come up with any ideas at all about what we were going to do for a show. And in a way, that was really, really good because what it then made us do, we were, we were obviously good friends and we were going to stay in touch. But we said, well, why don't we wait for the right idea? And in the meantime... It was a period of time when you had to get your equity card to, to, to become an actor. So Hayley and I went off in search of that and then began to work. You know, Hayley uh, uh, amazingly did end up working with Conquisto through the Crocodiles. And I spent a couple of years with the brilliant mask company, Trestle, and then David Glass. So we, we stayed in touch, but we kept working. And then it was only five years later in 1993, and I had just read 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and there was a tiny couple of pages of a story in that bigger novel that I thought may be right for us, which was a very simple story of a chicken thief who falls in love with this girl. And I said to Hayley, I think you should read this. I think there might be something in it. And she agreed. And then we went back to John, who we hadn't spoken to for some time, and said, will you work on it with us? And he did. And then in 1993, we took it up to the Edinburgh Festival, and luckily, as can happen, it took off in Edinburgh. But I think the great thing for us was that we didn't start straight away. We had that five-year gap. Because what it then meant was, even though we've now been going 27 years, one of the reasons, the main reasons why I think we've had longevity is that we go away and away from each other and we work with different people. I think if we'd have started straight away and we'd stayed together, I'd be amazed if it had lasted five years. I mean, you think about bands as well, you know, when you're together like that and trying to create something, there's only a, there's only a kind of, unless you're the wrong stands, I suppose, there's only a kind of limited lifespan for that. So I think our lack of ideas has helped us in the long run at the beginning, if that makes sense. So you, you make that first show. What was that first show called? It was called On the Verge of Exploding. On the ver on the verge of exploding, uh, and then it go and it and it goes to uh, Edinburgh, and you have a success there. And I would imagine in what was then a much smaller Edinburgh festival than the one we experience now. Oh God, yeah. Even though it still felt big to us, I mean, I, I hadn't been up for a while until I went last year, and God, it's big now, that's for sure. So yes, much smaller. Um, and I think, in some ways, 
that makes it obviously slightly, you know, less comedy dominated, although that was still the case in the, in the evenings. Um, and I think we maybe made, we didn't have a lot of money, but we made, we took some advice and made some choices in that very early stage. But to be honest, we weren't thinking about making a company. All that lay at the heart of it, certainly for Haley and me, Haley and I were in it with another performer called Sarah Brigham and John directed it. Uh, it was probably different for John, but I certainly think for me and Haley, all we wanted to do was to make something that was ours, that wasn't a play off the shelf, wasn't another version of Hamlet. It was our thing. And whatever people thought of it, it didn't exist before we did it. And I remember standing in the courtyard at the back of the Pleasant saying that to myself before the first show. Whatever happened, even if people hated it, we made this. And that was a very strong desire. And I think that stayed there ever since that, Yes, text can be wonderful and brilliant and exhilarating, but when you genuinely make something up, uh, and he goes right through to a uh, show that was stopped during during the because of the virus, the Charlie Chaplin and Stan Laurel show, the, that was that came out of us and a group of idiots, you know. So that that was the, the, the in a sense the most important thing. But then brilliantly, and you need luck in Edinburgh, but we had it. We had a extraordinary review in the, in the Times that came out at the end of the first week, and of course that was luck in a sense and it helped us and then it gained momentum um and at that point we were very naive we had no producer or anything like that but then luckily again people came to us in a sense so it's it, it, it quite a big part for sure and um obviously your company is called um told told by an idiot and uh which is a quote from shakespeare but you use that word a lot you refer to yourself as idiots you just said uh a show made by a group of idiots i just wonder what does that word mean to you in in relation to your company and making work what does it mean to be an idiot of course when you call yourself told by an idiot, everybody goes to the shakespeare which is understandable but for us that wasn't the reason i think that the name had been knocking around pre the company because i'd done a one per, a one person show about will kemp shakespeare's fool and i think that that title had been around and about that one man show 30 years ago or whatever but for us it was we wanted to make work certainly in the early years where at this, we wanted to make where work where the the sort of characters who would be comic relief in bigger stories like Shakespeare, we wanted them to be at the centre of our stories. We wanted them to be our Romeo and Juliet. If I look back to on the verge of exploding, the, the part I played and part I played, we we were two clowns. We were two very innocent figures in the, and and naive and ridiculous. And they were the they were the main characters in the story so it was kind of about, about wanting to place those kind of characters center stage rather than being on the edge if you like which they are often in bigger or, or, or more classical work what does it mean to be an idiot it's probably changed over the years and you're right we do use that term uh i think there is uh we have had an ongoing search and embracing of the our stupidity or our ridiculous side. I think we've always felt that that's a really fruitful and creative place to make work from. Um, and I think somewhere for us probably it ties into a sense of, 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 of investigating and celebrating the work and not the ego of the people involved. And, and it's become a playful shorthand for of how we talk about ourselves. And, uh, and strangely, I think, even though the name has always made people go, oh, what's that? Or, you know, when you're in the bank up or whatever. I think it also has become something where people feel uh, strangely um, pleased to be part of the idiots or to be referred to in that, in that sense. So it's sort of strangely liberating in a way as well. Uh, and how do you uh, how do you go about uh, finding materials for, for the shows? Like where does, it, where does a new Told by an Idiot show begin? It can come from a variety of places, really. It doesn't always come from us. It can come from someone else. Uh, so there's no there's no one starting point. In the same way that, that one show can wildly differ from the next, in a sense, there are core things that that remain. I suppose that we're passionate about. Um, 
you know, one I suppose is we we had no desire to create something real on stage. I mean, funny enough, this kind of forms some of the sort of my first essay that's online. We're we're not interested in naturalism or psychological realism, and we're we're kind of firmly of the belief that film and TV will always do that better than theatre. So the artifice of performance is something that we completely revel in. Um, we, this, this again might sound contradictory, but we, are, we take our comedy very seriously. It's very important to us. And even if in other forms of literature or films, I can be drawn to something that doesn't have any comedy at all. I'm very wary of theatre that has no comedy in it. It makes me slightly uneasy sometimes where if a piece is completely devoid of it. So for us, I suppose, we've always remained fascinated by trying to inhabit the space between laughter and pain. That for us has always been the place that we search for in our work. In terms of starting points, it can, we've, we've often started from a moment of fact, so the, 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 the recent show, the Charlie Chaplin show, started from the, 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 the true story of Stan understudying Charlie when they were young men before they were famous and sharing a cabin on the, a boat to America. We've, we did a show based around the moment just before the Spanish poet uh, Lorca was going to be shot by the fascists. Um, and in the time it took the bullet to leave the gun to kill him, we spiralled back into a, a fantasia of his early relationships with Dali and Bunuel. Uh, so that can sometimes be a starting point. Sometimes it can be much vaguer. If I think about the show that we've just put on, just released online, uh, again on the website or on YouTube, a show called Get Happy that we made. The starting point for that show, my son was two, three at the time, and I was very obviously very fascinated by how his imagination worked. And I was intrigued how he could commit to something wholeheartedly and then a second later, drop that and commit to something else in the same way. And I thought, we've got to try and make a piece that followed that kind of uh, idea. So we ended up making a piece called Get Happy with the Barbican, in which we deliberately set out to have no narrative whatsoever. And we created a sequence of sketches. And the only criteria for a sketch getting into the show is if we found it entertaining or not. If it was entertaining, it was in. And... Uh, and we ended up, then we had other influences that came into the piece, like uh, Pina Barish and Charlie Chaplin and Dr. Zeus. And in some way, the, the links did emerge, but they emerged much later and after. Um, sometimes, not very often, but sometimes we've been interested in something that's more of a theme. So a few years ago, we, we spent some time talking to our friends at Impor Improbable about maybe doing something together that was political. And then... For a variety of reasons, we spent a week together, which was a great laugh talking about things, but it didn't work out time-wise, various things. But it, we still have this desire to make something political, partly out of the, uh, the interest in making something that was highly theatrical and political. It seems to me that often in this country, when work is overtly political, it inhabits the space of psychological realism or naturalism. It, it's really wildly theatrical. So we, we want, that was kind of a bit of a quest for us. But when we go into ideas or shows where there isn't much of a starting point, where it's a bit, um, there's, there's not a lot to hang on to, we often look to other influences. So even though we don't know what they're going to do, we, if, if, the, if the starting point feels a little bit tenuous, we bring in things that feel a little bit more concrete that we just have a hunch about. Um, and another starting point have been adaptation. Sometimes we, we did an adaptation of the Michelle Flavor short story called The Fire Night Spins of the Barbican uh, and an uh, Argentinian story called The SOS Diablo at the Gate. So a variety, of, you know, there are things that remain constant, collaborative working process, the, 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 the comedy mixed with something else, the theatricality, and ultimately, I suppose, a desire to provoke the audience in some way. We're never going to ignore them. The only thing that we're there to do is to provoke them in some way. 
wonder, can you uh, just talk a little bit more about uh, your relationship with comedy and why it's important to you? Uh, and I'd love you to just unpick a little bit that thing you said previously about being mistrustful of theatre that doesn't involve comedy. I'll tell you. I'll tell you why I'm, I'm asking for personal reasons. Really, I was re- I was reading uh, some essays by Howard Jacobson recently, uh, and he wrote, he wrote a brilliant essay on comedy. And in that, he said, um, "I'm very mistrustful of people." who don't laugh at me, by which he meant people who he couldn't make laugh, because uh, laughter is really important. If our eyes can meet over laughter, that's where love is. And I was just really, I was really struck by that. And I was thinking about, you know, the relationships in my life, professional and, and personal, whereby, yeah, and it's absolutely right. I'd never quite considered it, but I'm not friends with anyone I don't laugh with. Uh, so, yeah, I wondered if you perhaps you could talk about your relationship to comedy and making people laugh. Yeah, I think that's it. Before I do that, what's the title of that essay? I think it's just called On Comedy, but I tell you what, I will look it up when we're finished. I'll send you an email. Oh, yeah, thank link. you. I, I, yeah. I'd love to read that. Um, uh, well, I suppose a relationship with comedy that goes a long, long way back. You know, I, as I mentioned earlier, my father was very close to, was a very funny man um, and introduced me to a lot of comedy as a kid. Um a, a, a fascination that starts with obviously really enjoying and laughing at it, and then maybe starting to work out trying to work out how it's done or how various people do it. Going right back to obviously things like Chaplin and and uh, uh, and Stan and Ollie, and then through things like Tommy Cooper and stuff like this. Um, I think as a performer. And, and then, I suppose, as a theatre maker slash director, on one level, if I remember a very early experience at, at college when John did a comedia show and we devised a comedia piece in our second year and then we presented it for three nights and I played uh, Alokino in that. And I remember John saying, you know, we're in the creative structure and you're going to, as a company, riff and improvise through the structure, which was obviously terrifying incredibly exhilarating it, it, it was like someone opening a door and saying come from here you can make it up and you can you can respond to the audience and you can improvise and and uh, I think that particular show where I, I suddenly had that license I, I found incredibly exhilarating um, I also I suppose as time has gone on with the company passionately believe I suppose like so I'm sure lots of people do, but I passionately believe that the comedy can, can contain real profundity. Really, within it, you can have really profound things happening within the comedy, and it doesn't have to just be relief for something else. Um, so I think that for us became a kind of quest that within our work, that yes, we would consistently look to clash the comedy with something else. So it wasn't that we just wanted to make, and nothing wrong with this, I, I had huge respect for companies like Spymonkey who were brilliant clan companies, but we always wanted to clash it with something else. And often, in, when we hopefully got that balance right, it, we, they could laugh one minute and then be very, feel something very different the next. And also, I suppose, we got very interested with the notion that there wasn't a point in our work where we wanted the comedy to stop. So it wasn't like we go now, for the last 15 minutes, it has to be, this is where the serious stuff needs to really kick in. We wanted to push the comedy right through to the end. And obviously, like anything, it's a, it's a, the context is everything. So you're constantly looking to create the right concept, I suppose. Um, it's interesting what you say about the essay you read and also about yourself, because it, it's true. We, if, you think, if we think about it, nothing and finding someone funny is very seductive, very attractive. And know that we, we see it in life all the time. Um, in, in the same way, I said when I come back to the thing about the mistrustful thing of when I see something where it's, it's devoid of humour, I kind of feel what... It's not that I'm saying they're, they're nervous of it, but I often get asked... Someone asked me the other day at one of the surgeries, are you, uh, saying, well, I want to do this thing, but I'm worried that the, I want it to mix humour and, and, and something darker, but I'm worried that the humour starts to undermine what's dark. And I said, it doesn't have to at all. And I think it's this thing where I, 
where people go on. It can't carry weight, or it can't. It can't be um, something that can really sit with meaty themes. I mean, you know, the first film that I recommended, the ten films on the website, is the 1942 Ernst Lubitsch version of To Be or Not to Be, which is just brilliant. Yes, I mean you yeah, obviously like, know it. And one of the best films. Yeah. It's one of the best films, not just one of the best comedies. It's one of the best films. Full stop. Yeah, uh, it's great. That, it's great that you know it. I mean, the fact that you know, at seventy-three years later, it is so audacious. It is so extraordinary, uh, as it were, and it is absolutely hilarious. And there are many examples, and that's a brilliant one. Where you know, initially there is a brilliant line in it, which you will know, where he goes, someone goes. Uh, what you are doing to one of the Nazis says, what you are doing to Shakespeare, we are now doing to Poland. And it's a very funny and brilliant line. When Lubitsch came up with that line, a collection of his peers, very, very brilliant filmmakers, Billy Wilder, I can't remember the other two, all said, you can't have that line. You cannot have, in the current situation, a character saying that line. And Lubitsch said, I'm going to do it. And I think the audaciousness of it, it's a brilliant attack on the Nazis and what they were. You know, it, it, it's such wonderful. And it's sublimely funny and sublimely played. And you root for that company of actors so brilliantly. Um, another example is, is, uh, is Duck Soup, The Marx Brothers. It's one of the, for me, one of the great anti-war films. It's brilliantly anti-war in it, in it and through its ludicrousness and how ridiculous war is. So I, I feel, I feel that it, it's, it's, of course I do, because I'm passionate about it. It's not always given its weight in theatre. And even when sometimes people, I suppose what frustrates me sometimes, especially with, uh, maybe with Shakespeare sometimes, is when someone's going to do comedy of errors and they say, oh, we're really, really going to focus on bringing out the darker themes of comedy of errors. And I want to go, it's a comedy. The clue is in the title. It's, you know what I mean? You're, you're, you've got to fundamentally, first and foremost, make people laugh. And I sometimes think people are doing that because they're frightened of making it. It's not easy to make people laugh. It's really hard to do that. It's much easier to go, oh, I'm going to bring out the dark side of comedy of errors. That's the easy route to do. Trying to winkle every single laugh out of that play is a much harder route to go down. And also... Before I stopped because of the virus, I was performing at the Park Theatre in La Cage Folle, play version of that. And we talked about it. It's a very funny play, and Simon Keller did a brilliant version of it. But you are judged every other minute as to whether that show is working. If they laugh, it's working. If they don't, it's not working. And I think it requires real tenacity to put, your, uh, you know, to put yourself in that position. But um, I... I, I yeah, I probably rambled on a bit there, but I hope that gives you, it's given enough of a kind of sense of how passionate I am about it. And also, I've lost count of the number of times where I've been in buildings or I've been asked to go and develop something when they say, oh, we really need a comedy, you know, we haven't got many comedies. And you, I, you kind of go, well, shouldn't you be looking at why you haven't? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's such an enormous part of our life and our world. Um, you know, and you're saying, oh, we haven't done, we're not very good at comedies, we don't do comedies. Well, isn't that a vast chunk of the theatre kind of spectrum missing? Um, and I suppose, you know, it's an interesting thing because there's a trend uh, of which, you know, uh, Maybe years ago I've been part of. I haven't. I don't do it anymore. But that's for different reasons. But there's a trend now I see sometimes where you'll see a poster for a, a, usually a, a big classical comedy of some sort, and there'll be a director on it, and then somewhere on the credits it will say comedy director or comedy <laughs> director of comedy. And I'm often intrigued by this because I often go, well, what's the director doing there? Because I, I think if you're going to direct a comedy, you need to have a feel for the comedy. I wouldn't dream of directing Hamlet and having a tragedy director. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and I think it's become this kind of thing, well, I want to do this comedy, but I'm not very good at comedy. 
be really good if I did a comedy. It'd be good for my CV. It would look good. But I'm a bit nervous. I can't do it. I'll get someone else to come in and do that. <laughs> I mean, what a weird idea, you know. Um, and also, yeah. I think there, there is, sorry, one last thought was in my head. There's often a misconception that I think has come from a literary viewpoint. This is much to do more to do with, uh, and theatre for me is not a literary form at all. But I remember doing a Molière at Birmingham Rep a few years ago with Roxana Silver, her first show, and she did Tartuffe. And I played organ in that. And there was a translation, new translation, really good. And they brought in an academic from Birmingham University to talk about Molière. And I'm mad, I'm mad on Molière. We did a, uh, Tom and I, we did our own version of Tartuffe many years ago called Don't Laugh, It's My Life. Uh, where we took the same story and changed it. But I remember this academic saying that Molière, in his own words, talks about the reason he makes these plays. The only thing that he's... In, the, not the only thing. The first thing he's interested in is making an audience laugh. And he was one of the first writers to say that. Now, often when you see Molière, you'd think that was not even in his top ten of ideas. Um, because the productions themselves aren't funny enough or haven't taken the comedy seriously enough or found the comedy in this brilliant situation. Sorry, you were going to say something? No, I was, uh, was going to say, because I think, uh, I think this is related, um, uh, I, I would agree with you that there, I think there, there is probably a mistrust of uh, comedy within uh, our theatre world in Britain. I'm going to say that. Uh, and I also think it's sort of bound up with uh, how the, the terms of which the majority of the work that we see is performed. Because I'm I'm fascinated by uh, Central and Eastern European theatre, and I've worked out there, and I'm fascinated by it because of the actors and their relationship to the audience, in that they never pretend for a second that the audience aren't there and there isn't a live relationship. Uh, and that's, that's their tradition, and obviously it's pretty clear where that comes from. But we have a very similar tradition, and I think your work sits in line with that tradition, you know, that comes from pantomime and the music hall and whatnot. And for some reason, I think there's a tendency for us to say that it's just not serious and it's not useful. For me, it's essentially the, the profound interaction of what theatre is, acknowledging the presence of your audience. And the best way to acknowledge that relationship is to get them laughing because then you know that the relationship's working. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And also, I think it comes, it still comes down to a certain, for me, a certain type of snobbery around what is deemed more worthy. I do. I'm, I really think that's the case sometimes. Um, uh, and I think when I, I was lucky enough to to be in uh, MRI's production of Wise Children, the Angela Carter uh, book, and I'm more than lucky and thrilled to play the, the part of Gorgeous George, who is basically Angela Carter writing the character um, of Max Miller, the, the the comic. So I spent, I had the joy in rehearsal, spending hours and hours of looking at old Miller stuff and, and then creating a kind of, not homage exactly, but a, a version of something of my own, all mixed up in that. And I, when I would go out and so she did the old Vic, which is perfect for it, that sense, with mean, that kind of persona and that kind of material, directly with, you know, a thousand people, was kind of extraordinary. You kind of go, some of these jokes are very old, they're not new, but something about the relationship of the audience and on a good night were like, they were so with what you were doing. So with, and they were so, you and them were so in the moment. Those thousand people and that and me were in that moment together. So often, the, the, in theatre, then the audience and the performers are not in the same moment. I wonder. Can we talk a little bit about your uh, your work as a freelance actor? Because I uh, I just want to know what's it like for you being in someone else's rehearsal room. Well, that's a good question, and I often get asked that by other actors who uh, are, are suddenly you know finding themselves making their own work and then saying, "Oh, how do you get on when you're suddenly back in a rehearsal room?" I think there's two separate things really. I think the directing thing when I go as an actor into someone else's show that someone else is directing, I have no desire to direct that show. 
I will be there, hopefully, with uh, energy and openness and creativity. But I'm there to be in that show, not direct that show. And I think sometimes, I'm sure, some directors are nervous about having someone in the cast who is themselves a director. And I can appreciate that. But I, that's the last thing on my mind. Also, it's to do with responsibility. Because I think, as a director, there is more responsibility. You know, you have to... However collaborative your process is, you have to somehow lead that process. You have to bring lots of different people together. You have to structure some journey for whatever your material is. You have to direct the actors. All that. But I think as an actor, there should be very little responsibility. An actor should not be responsible. Other than turning up on time, being open and trying stuff, that's about all your responsibility is. So... Uh, those two differences are quite important to me. When I go and act in someone else's play, I don't suddenly become a different actor. Of course I don't. I come with the same instincts and the same impulses and the same, uh, you know, that I would with our own work. I'm only aware sometimes where we have a very, very open room in terms of people generating, coming up with ideas in the room. And it doesn't matter who they are. It can be the person on work experience. Everyone has a voice in our room. It doesn't mean that all the ideas end up in the show. It's not, it's not like some big hippie commune, but it's more about creating a very open room that people can contribute to. Now, if I'm working in someone else's room, I will suggest something and they can take it or leave it. I don't mind. It's really, that's the function is to try to bring something to the table. I might do, if that gets knocked back, that's fine. If the second time I suggest something, it's not back in a particular way. There'll be a point where I, I've maybe been like, ah, oh, it's not that kind of room. We're in a room where it's more, a little bit more controlled by this person. And that's fine. And I can deal with that. And I can find my way through that. And, and, and I'd be perfectly happy within that. So I think in some ways, you have to, one has to be honest to yourself and be who you are. At the same time, respect and be flexible with the situation you're in. I've been lucky, I think, because I think a lot of the directors I've worked with, I mentioned Emma, I've worked with her a few times, is that often I think people end up casting me because of Tolmodi and what they've seen. So that maybe there's a desire, they think, okay, well, maybe this all might bring something to what this part or play is, sort of thing. And I've always found, as an actor, that that actually, I mean, a lot of directors I work with have always been open to stuff. That's the only thing that depresses me when I feel like it was a closed down very quickly or it's not a very open uh, room. I was just thinking as well about how important it feels to me to keep trying things in rehearsal if I'm in someone else's rehearsal room. Because I sometimes feel actors, for whatever reason, can stop trying things when they rehearse a scene, for instance. Whereas I always think, again, it probably comes from my background, my training, the company, that the reason to return to a scene is to try something else, not just to repeat what you've already done. I don't think that's rehearsing. If, if you spend a week finding something, then you just repeat it for the next five weeks and then do it in front of an audience. That's not, that's not what rehearsal is about to me. It, for me, it's about a consistent search for something else, even if you end up going back to that thing that you found in week one. Um, so sometimes people say to me, oh, God, you, you, you just went for it in that scene. And I thought, well, all that can happen is the director can say, well, I'm not sure about that. or uh, But at least you're giving them options and you're giving choices and you're being creative yourself. So in saying, slight contradiction maybe, in saying... It, Often what I do as an actor, and I see it as a director sometimes, the best thing I think as an actor is not to try and describe to the director what you're about to do. I've seen it again and again where actors start to go, oh, I thought in this moment we're about to do, when I come through the door, what I, and I can see the director glazing over as the actor continues to describe what they're about to do. And a few, quite a few years ago, I decided I'm never going to do that. I'm just going to come through the door and do what I'm going to do. And then we can talk about it. But the, the notion that you describe what you're doing, I, it, I find more and more bizarre. I also think, for me, 
and again, it comes from all the work thing we talked about. For me, it's really important to go into the scene not knowing what you're going to do. Just get up. They might have a script, so you've got some words and you've got a situation and a relate. That's all you need. You don't need to decide, oh, I'm going to, even to a point where if you decide to do something, and you may have shared that with the director or the group, if it feels two minutes later not right to do it, then don't do it. I can think of an example where I was working on this show where we, have, we as a company, we had to try and get rid of a lot of mattresses on stage as a practical thing at the end of this scene. So people were trying to be creative and inventive about how we could get them up. And I said, um, well, I'm about to be punched in the face by that character. So maybe I could fall backwards and some, oh no, we have to get a mattress on, not off, we have to get a mattress on. So I said, maybe someone, as I'm punching the face, could bring the mattress in and I could fall onto the mattress. So, okay, let's try that. So we do the scene and the actor punches me and it takes so long for the person to get, not their fault, to get this mattress in position. But as they're bringing it in, my instinct is going, I can't now do what I've decided. So I then decided to fall forward onto my face with the mattress behind me. And, you know, it got a big laugh. But I remember the director going, was slightly disconcerted and went, but you didn't do what you said you were going to do. And I went, no, I didn't because at the point that in that moment, it felt much funnier to do the opposite of what I was going to do, if that makes sense. I think it's always for me about trying to be in that moment, even if you've had an idea. If it's not right at the time of the doing of it, do something else. And uh, with those things in mind, I wonder if we can just talk about when you're making a show, and I don't mean not a told by an idiot show, let's say you are uh, one of your freelance shows as a director. Yeah. What does, the, what does the first week in your rehearsal room look like? Well, again, I think it differs quite a lot. There are certain, I suppose, I might break this. Uh, of course I might, but there are certain, if I think about the, the text that I've done as a director, uh, there are certain things that I don't do on day one. I don't read the script out loud to everybody, um, uh, which is not radical. But when I first started saying that about 10 years ago in buildings, it was a bit of a battle. When I said, uh, uh, you know, talking to the stage manager or whatever on the first, a week before I'd say uh, Salisbury Rep I'd go uh, I don't want to read the, the play on the first day uh, I we all look at the set and then I just want to get going with the actors and then an hour later the director would call back and say oh I understand you're not um, you're not reading the, the play I went no that's right oh right well that, that, that's how it, we normally you know. and I kind of went well I'm assuming that the people who are directly involved in the show have read the play. Um, and I'm very happy for the rest of your building after the meet and greet. They can come back on Friday afternoon. They can watch some of the rehearsal. They can see something. End of the first week, Friday afternoon, before maybe we all have a glass of wine. And for me, it's about doing something very early, practically going, oh, we're doing something. And if I'm being, again, maybe... Uh, I feel, and I feel this as an actor sometimes, that at that moment at the beginning of the first day after the coffee and then you sit down and read the play, I sometimes think, not always, I sometimes think that that is done as proper work avoidance. There's two hours where it's not, I don't have to worry about what we do, I'm going to sit and read the play. And I think, you, for me, you've wasted two hours. You could start on something. You get the actors up. You could be working with them physically. You could be doing whatever that thing is. So I don't tend to do that. Um, the, the, all our work starts physically in some shape or form. So I think the start, to, if you came into the rehearsal on the first week uh, and then the last week, then you would always see some sort of physical starting point. The only difference being at the end of the, it might some of the physical preparation work might be slightly shorter, but we'd always start with something physical. Um, and also, I suppose I'd also in that first week be concentrating on building that group of actors, that ensemble, properly building that. Not to do the play or the characters, but getting these people to be able to play together. 
which for me seems absolutely crucial and comes before any sense of the text or the story. Sometimes there's been choices in a production which have informed how I've started it. So, for instance, when I directed Comedy of Errors at the RSC, I knew in conversation with my composer that I didn't want a separate group of musicians, which the RSC were finally offering me. I wanted to cast 12 actors who could all play music well enough to become a band. And I remember saying, I've done this before, saying to Ian, the composer, how do I set about creating a company where all the actors could become a band? And he was brilliantly practical. He said, you create four groups within that 12. Three groups, four groups. You have a group of maybe three actors who are very skillful musicians that you've found, who, who can play a lot of shows and very comfortable. Then you have another group of three actors who have played music to uh, at school, maybe. They're, they're, they're not quite confident with music, but they maybe haven't done so much. Then you have a, uh, another group who maybe have played a tiny bit of stuff. And then you have a final group who maybe haven't done much at all. He said, but if you get that balance right, you could make a band. So I basically cast the show with that in mind. I said no to some actors who were brilliant because they didn't fit into any of the music category. But when we started that rehearsal at the RSC, the first two hours of every day was band practice, was then becoming a band. And um, uh, and Ian teaching them what became this rather strange Balkan ska music that he'd written. And... Um, and then in, I think after that, we would start, we'd obviously play together in a group, and then in the afternoon, that first week, we would start to look at the physical life of some of the scenes and extemporise around some of the situations in comedy verse. But the great, we didn't go to the script until the beginning of the second week, properly, in terms of actually looking at the text, and we had a long rehearsal week, I suppose. Um, but the great thing about that was that the... The quality of how they had to listen to become a band completely informed how they listened when they then went into the play. They had to listen so hard when they were playing the music. And I'm convinced that, that then informed how we were then able to, to go into the, the piece itself. So there are, I suppose what I'm saying is there are certain givens, i.e. a certain physical approach, a certain level of uh, of improvisation, even within a text, um, I, I tend to, if we're working on the text, I tend to not really rehearse with the actors holding the scripts. There's always different ways where they're not doing that, so that they're connecting with each other from the word go, so playing around with that. Um, also, I tend to have a quite a... Quite an open rehearsal room. I like a room where people come and go. I, I don't necessarily like a room of hushed silence. So if we're working in a building, I'm very happy. We, we tend to share our work quite a lot. And said at the end of each week, there will be some kind of showing or sharing of what we're doing, um, which kind of keeps people around the production hopefully very engaged with it. Um, and I'm also often casting actors who are very comfortable in themselves playing, you know. Um, that, that's the key of it. I mean, that's the actors, I suppose. Uh, great. Uh, that's uh, super clear and really interesting. I just have two very quick questions sure. before we finish up. Um, first of all, can you tell us about the last work of art that absolutely blew your mind? Best thing I've seen in the, 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 this year for me is a movie called A Portrait of a Lady on Fire uh, by a French director whose name's going to escape me, a woman. Sorry, I'm going to tip my tongue. Uh, I thought it was absolutely extraordinary. It's a film about a uh, uh, a female artist who is sent to paint the portrait of this wealthy young aristocrat on this island. The whole film, apart from the beginning and the end, takes place on this island, and, and the, uh, a lot of it is just between the two of them. And it's an extraordinary tale of obsession that draws on the story of the, the myth of Eurydice and um, Orpheus and Eurydice. And kind of what feels, yeah, very unusual in a sense is there's no real men in the film. So you see some sailors who, it's all set in around, I suppose, Napoleonic 
France, and uh, there's some sailors drop the female artist off on the beach, and then for the rest of the film, you never see any men. You only see this female servant and the mother, and then men come back at the very end, and when when and when it's a return to society. But it, it, it it's like a, on one level, it's like an extraordinary kind of strange, almost vertigo-like story of these two women. But yeah, that, that had a profound effect on me. Yeah. And finally, can you uh, recommend something for us to all enjoy while we're social distancing? Well, I have to say, only because, again, we touched on it, but, and, and I know you, you're obviously a fan, I probably would say everybody could do with a bit of Lubitsch to be or not to be, I would say. I think in the times we're in, sit and watch that because that'll, uh, that'll make you laugh. Absolutely. An excellent recommendation. Paul, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been a real pleasure. Not at all. Thank you, Craig. All the best. Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghamplayhouse.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released.